we're looking at Philippians chapter 2. And then, if you will, put your finger in 1 John. Philippians chapter 2. And 1 John chapter 2. We had a great Sunday last Sunday together with our global workers, uh, the Steinfields. And it was so wonderful to hear from them and get an update and a report and just see their faces um, beyond just the photo that we have of them at the back, and uh, you received their newsletter, I trust, as well. So good to be together with them. And um, this Sunday, we resume our new series, Agape, and we're into uh, the uh, third part or the, of, of this series already. I've been setting the table. Actually, this is part two. Uh, the second session we, we are sharing together in this series. And I've been setting the table together. I told a story to you, a true story, uh, two Sundays ago, the story of Richard and Charles. And uh, I, I wanted to uh, consider together with you a real-life example of, of what this looks like, what we're talking about here in this series. And so if you missed that Sunday... Um, I trust that you'll be able to get a hold of it uh, through uh, ordering the message or visiting our website. And we get into the second part of this, setting the table for this series. And I want to do that by sharing my own background with you. In this series, of course, we are considering what it looks like, what it means to live a life of agape love. And we're going to be unpacking in the weeks to come what that means, agape love. What is it to look like in our lives? The love with which Jesus has loved us. How are we then to love our neighbor, love our brother and sister in that same way in which Christ first loved us? us. And in particular, we're thinking of the fact that our world is a broken world. Our lives are broken lives. And a part of that brokenness entails interacting and relating with certain communities and groups of people that have been particularly fractured by this brokenness, not making them any worse off than any of the rest of us, but presenting to us unique challenges in that brokenness. And I'm thinking in particular, as you know, if you were here a couple of Sundays ago, of our LGBTQ community and how we relate with them, how we love them, how we as the church are to interact with them and come alongside them and receive them. And so I told you the story of Richard and Charles and the church of my uh, pastor friend who ministered to that situation, and it's a powerful story. My own background 
has contributed to this series as well. And I want to share that with you this morning. But first, let's look at our text together. Will you? Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 16. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. Notice, notice the interaction that's happening here. Paul says, work out as God works in. We are to work out our salvation as God works in us. So just as He has worked in us, we are to work that out into the world in which we live as well. Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians, is all about thinking properly about our lives and how we are to live publicly as the people of God, the public life of the people of God. So Paul is saying, as God has worked in you His salvation, you are to responsively work that out. So there's this rhythm of working in and working out that which God has worked in. He works in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God. Grumbling and disputing, of course, are a sign of ingratitude, aren't they? People who are not grateful people are grumbling people and complaining people and disputing people. So Paul is, again, dealing with the way we think. Don't think that way. Be a people of gratitude. Don't be grumblers and disputers. Of course, Paul no doubt is thinking of the Israelites and they're wandering in the wilderness and remember all the murmuring that went on and the complaining and the grumbling. He no doubt has that in mind as he writes these words to the, the new church in Philippi. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. And here it is in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, a broken world, among whom you shine as lights in the world. The Hebrew mindset always compared the people of God, the people of righteousness, as shining lights. And what a fitting theme for us in this Advent and Christmas season, that we are all to be shining as lights in the world. Hold fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul's being very transparent there in expressing his own heart in saying to them, please let me see that my work with you and my investment in you and all the time and effort that I have given to uh, pour into you and disciple you and teach you in the ways of the Lord, that that hasn't been in vain, but that you instead would shine 
as lights, and you would hold fast to the word. And the idea there in holding fast to the word of life, notice it's a word of life, not a word of death. The word of the Lord is a word of life. It is a word of reconciliation. It's not a word of death. It's not a word of judgment Paul directs us to here. But he says, hold fast to the word of life. And the idea he has in mind is that as we hold fast to that, we're also holding it out to the world. So we're holding tightly to it ourselves, the word of life, but we're holding it out to the world as well, he says. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now look at our first John passage. No new, how's the, oh boy, boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Some of you are going to wish that I had just stuck with the dead battery instead. <laughs> so lift your voices with me, say no new. Now, now watch, watch John's words here because he, he can, it gets a little confusing if you follow him. He says, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment. Well, what is it, John, old or new? Well, John's point is, is that it's, there's a newness that I want to show you about this command of the Lord, but it's not new in the sense that you've never heard of this before. John's saying this is a command that's been around for for ancient of, of times, our ancestors lived by this commandment. It was given to them through Moses, this commandment. So it's not new in that sense, but it is new in that now Christ has revealed it to us and opened it up to us in a new way, this commandment. At the same time, verse 8, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in Him, Christ Jesus, and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother or sister is still in darkness. So John's bringing this home now to where the rubber meets the road of our lives. He's saying, I'm not giving you a new commandment, and yet it is new in the sense that Christ has now revealed this commandment to us, and what this commandment of love is to look like. So, live by this. In these days where the darkness and the world is passing away, and the true light is already shining. And then he says, whoever says, if you say that you're in the light, but yet you hate your brother or your sister, you're not really in the light, John is saying. You're still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother or sister abides in the light, and in him or her there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother or sister, is in the darkness 
and walks in darkness and does not know where he or she is going because the darkness has blinded their eyes. The life and look of love in a broken world. Agape. My own background as we approach this subject together of loving a broken world, and in particular, loving a marginalized group of people that have uh, been treated so very often in terrible and despicable ways by the church. My background in my own life was very disposed against me coming to the way I think and feel today regarding this particular subject. And for that matter, any other subject that pertains to sinners along the lines of sin with some of the things that are more damaging or considered more grotesque as they take their impact on the human personality. I was raised, I didn't know it at the time, but I was raised in a climate of self-righteousness. Especially with regards to the homosexual and lesbian. We didn't have any answer for that group of people. We didn't know what to do with them. I wonder sometimes if the reason the church of my childhood was so self-righteous on this subject. And by the way, we would not have thought we were self-righteous. We did not have an awareness that we were self-righteous. We thought it was righteous the way we thought and the way we conducted ourselves. We thought it was righteousness. We had no other understanding. But I wonder if the reason for the self-righteousness and the distancing from anything like this was because we really didn't feel that we had an answer. Unless the answer came totally on our terms. If someone came into a church gathering, we didn't need to show any love. And I'm not just talking about the homosexual or lesbian or LGBTQ community. Someone who would be considered a sinner that we would look at in our self-righteousness as a sinner, a heathen of the world. If they would come in to a church gathering like this, we didn't need to show any love. We just needed to preach the hard gospel at them and call people to the Lord. And then they come on our terms rather than lovingly reaching to them as Jesus reached to us. This never occurred to us. I was raised in an environment where we thought nothing of making jokes about the homosexual. We didn't think anything of it. 
Words like queer, homo, and fag were often used in pejorative jest, in humor, in making fun of, derogatory, disparaging. Similar jokes were made slurring black people and Jewish people, never realizing that this was something so inappropriate an expression that was often used without even any thought given to it, for example, was if you were speaking with someone about the great deal that you just received on a certain purchase that you had made, you would often hear this expression exchanged with another person in use of the conversation, oh yeah, I got a really good deal, I really jewed them down on that one. And it was said with humor, not realizing how disparaging that expression really is. Never realizing that this was something so inappropriate to anyone who named the name of the Lord, as we did. But so impacted, though we named the name of the Lord and considered ourselves Christians, followers of Christ, we were so impacted by the culture of our society that we didn't realize how this way of thinking intruded upon the reality of who we were supposed to be in Jesus. Beloved, Jesus would never relate this way. Jesus would never use that kind of humor. But these kind of things, in my background, were just par for the course. They were done without thought. So with these kinds of things being a part of my background, I understand why many of us come with great difficulty to dealing with this kind of subject in a truly Christ-like and biblical way. It isn't easy. This is not an easy subject to deal with. So many things have taken us down other paths. We are very quick, oftentimes, to say how much the homosexual needs to repent. However, I am deeply aware that if the living, life-giving church of Jesus Christ, the people who, as Paul in our text admonishes us to be who hold fast, hold tightly to the word of life, and hold that word of life out to the world. If we, the living, life-giving church of Jesus Christ, if we experienced a massive repentance unto love towards our neighbors, who like us are sinners, 
including an equal and full availability as Jesus would show to a homosexual, we would find a sweeping holy reversal through the entire community of people over the coming years in such a way that I believe it would astound us. As it is brought about by a genuine spirit of love and grace, agape. I believe this with all my heart. As the text says, 1 John 2 verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in the light there is no cause for stumbling. We do not, in other words, become a stumbling block to those we are trying to reach and hold out the word of life to. Because we are doing so in a genuine spirit of love and grace. Beloved, we are looking here at a call to the church today that requires us to understand how to think and how to live and love in an increasingly crooked, twisted, and decaying culture. How to hold on to and hold out to others the word of life. Philippians 2, verse 16, our text. A broken world filled with broken people, and perversion is at the base of this matter. And I want to be quick to say that this is not meant in any measure to be sneering or scornful, even as I use that word perversion. In no measure is it meant to be sneering or scornful. Pervert itself is another one of those words that has been used that way. As I described in my own background. It's another one of those words that has been used that way, sneeringly and scornfully. And I don't want to convey that at all this morning. Perversion, of course, is a biblical term. It is the idea behind the rendering of our text, crooked and twisted, in verse 15 of our Philippians passage. The, 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 the Greek terms that are used there are skolios and diastrepho. Skolios, you, you may, that may ring a bell for you, that term, if you've ever heard of a disease called scoliosis, which is what? It's a twisting of the spine that happens. That's the term that Paul uses here to describe the culture the world that we live in. It refers to things that oppose or plot against the redemptive promise, purposes, and plans of God. God's high promise and purpose, His redemptive intention for us, for all creation, for all humankind, That which is 
perverted or twisted or, or crooked is that which opposes that, which works against it. Those promises, purposes, and plans of God. It refers to things that are adverse. Adverse to things that are intended in God's great created order and adverse to His new creation work in our lives. Things that have become adverse of the way God would have them, the way He would wish them to be. However, there's also another application here with this expression that Paul uses because in arguing for the reverse of everything that is adverse to God, follow me now what I'm saying. As the people of God, in arguing for the reverse, the thinking and the attitude has too often made it perverse. If it's been a thinking and attitude like that of my own background, of self-righteousness, then as we take a stand for the reverse of all that is adverse to God's promise, plan, and purpose, because we're doing so from a self-righteous posture, it perverts it. Are you following me? It becomes perverted because our thinking and our attitude is not pure and appropriate and Christ-like. Our thinking and our attitude has become so insistent and so demanding and so degrading and even dehumanizing that in its own way, it becomes recruiting in order to gain others with oneself, in order to gain numbers, a perceived majority that hopefully then seem to verify the rightness of our wrongness. Because look, look, look how many there are that are standing against this the way God's people should stand against it. And so what happens in taking this kind of a posture and approach, there is a failure to brilliant, brilliantly shine as the bright lights in the world that we are called to be. Because our own self-righteous righteous attitude and thinking perverts it, clouds the light. We're still living in darkness, as John puts it. As I told you earlier, Hebrew tradition often compared the righteous with lights. We are meant to be lights. Turn to the person beside you and just... Tell them, you are a light of the world. Go ahead, tell them that, will you? You are a light of the world. What does that mean? It means that as God's people, we are to be wise and winsome luminaries and signposts of the kingdom in the world. Not finger-wagging, judgment-toting, condemning, self-righteous, grumpy people. 
So there's a lot freighted in just this one verse of Philippians, chapter 2, verse 15, in our text. There's a lot freighted there. Much more that we don't even really have time to, to dig into this morning. But there's a lot packed into that one verse that Paul gives us. The composition of these things that develop perversion are reflected in that verse. And they're also reflected in John's statement when John says the whole world, in 1 John 2 verse 8, our 1 John text, he says the whole world is passing away. The darkness is passing away. And these are beautiful words that John uses, considering they were written near the end of the first century. And we now live in, in, in here, here we are, 20 centuries later, and one might well ask, upon hearing those words and reading those words, well, how is the darkness passing away there while the darkness here now seems to have intensified? How does that work? What am I to make of these words of John? But beloved, John's not talking about the quantity of darkness. Not the quantity of darkness. He's talking about the fact that wherever darkness exists, especially in the human heart, there is always an erosion that happens, a decay that is going on in the person, and they are aware of this. And if they will truly be honest with themselves, they will acknowledge that this darkness is taking away from their lives, reducing them, that it is a dead-end street. Incidentally, Advent... This season that we are marveling in, Advent is designed to show us that the meaning of Christmas is diminished to the vanishing point if we are not willing to take a fearless inventory of the darkness. So Advent prepares us to really fully and more truly with integrity celebrate Christmas. The darkness is passing away, John says. Would you say that with me? The darkness is passing away. Say it again. The darkness is passing away. And now, John says, the true light shines. Then, he says these words. He says, if I am living in that light, then I can't say that this is where I am living if I don't love my brother. If I'm living in the light that is shining, the light of Christ now shining, I can't really say I'm living in that light if I don't love my brother or my sister. Well, in reading this, I realized another thing about my background that I was oriented to. And perhaps you can relate with this as well. 
it was a theological orientation that I did not know at the time. I wasn't aware of it. But I've come to realize this now as the Spirit of God has been working in my own heart around this whole subject matter. It was a theological orientation in my background. It was not social. It was not cultural. It was theological. And this was on the grounds of understanding the Scriptures. It was the idea, it was the notion that I don't need to call people who are not in Christ my brothers or sisters. Well, I don't need to call them that. They're not in Christ, so they're not my brothers and sisters. We're talking, when I say brother and sister, we're talking about the people who are in Christ and part of the church. And this was the theological idea that we had. We don't need to call them brothers and sisters because they're not in Christ. After all, I've been born again. I'm in the family of God. They're not. Therefore, they are not my brothers and sisters in Christ. And of course, technically, technically, that is true. For the Bible uses the terms, for example, in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul writes that we have been brought into the family of God through new birth in Jesus Christ and that we have been born into one family. So the Bible does use those terms in that way. However, the Bible also refers to God, listen to this please, as the Father of all spirits. In other words, every human being has been created in His image. Every human being. And He has sired unto life, just as through Christ we are sired unto new creation life by the regeneration experience of salvation, He has sired all humankind unto life. All humankind has been made in His image. The weight of His glory is upon all humankind created in His image. Now, that image, as we know, has been disfigured and marred and broken and buried because of sin. But it does not diminish the fact that all humankind have been made in His image. So it stands to reason then that it is dishonesty with the revelation of Scripture that I would ever be less than acknowledging that every person on the planet, please hear my words this morning, every person on the planet I am brother to. That when Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor? He might well equally have been asked, who shall I say is my brother or my sister? 
You see, beloved, we, we've got to recognize that the Scripture, if we're honest with it, the Scripture places upon us equal demands here. The Bible does not see us as isolated individuals. Neither I nor my neighbor is yet the person God intends us to become. Neither I nor my neighbor is yet the person God intends us to become. The Bible teaches that no one of us lives or dies unto ourselves. That all of humankind has a mutual interconnectedness and related community. Somehow, the life of my brother and sister and my life are bound up in each other. Not only in terms of the special kinship of the mystery of the body of Christ because of the joy of salvation, but also in the body of humankind. In general, as a whole, I am a brother to all. I'm a brother to the person today that perhaps this very night will sit in a bar downtown on Granville or Hastings, or Georgia, and is there filled with an anger and hatred and malice that would suppose that any kind of gathering like this here this morning was intended to do anything possible to rid the earth of their kind. But he is my brother. She is my sister. And until that conviction, beloved, until that conviction settles and is established in me, I will not love as a brother. I will not truly love my neighbor as myself. I will not truly love as I have been loved. And therefore, John says, I'm not really walking in the light. Are, are you tracking with this? All of this calls to us from these texts that we have opened before us today. these texts at hand as we launch into this series. All of this tells us that if I don't learn to love, I am not shining as a light and living in the light any more than the one who is living in the darkness that is passing away. John says, you're no different than they are. I may have been born into the light, I may have come into the light of Christ Jesus. However, living it and living it out in the warmth and glow of that light is another matter entirely. Hello? 
That's what John is saying to us. How can I live and love in a crooked, twisted, decaying culture? What does the life of love look like in our broken world? How can I hold out the word of life to my brothers and sisters in the world rather than issuing an attitude of judgment? I believe that there are at least four keys to help us. And we'll begin unpacking those next time.